Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Intersections Matches Talk Radio, a monthly holistic lifestyle show focused on the continual evolution into the best versions of our authentic selves. This is just Bina, your host. I'm the founder of Intersections Match, the only matchmaking and dating coaching company focused on South Asian singles throughout North America. As a relationship expert and matchmaker, I'm always interested in fresh perspectives from authors, researchers, and experts to help me provide the best possible service to our clients. I'm very excited to welcome author and relationship expert Ty Tashiro to our show today. Ty is a relationship expert for the Discovery Network's Fit and Health channel, where he writes weekly articles about the science of love. He received his doctorate in psychology from the University of Minnesota, and Ty's research has been published in top-tier academic journals, including American Psychologist and Psychological Science. In today's show, we'll be discussing Ty's book entitled The Science of Happily Ever After, What Really Matters in the Quest for Enduring Love. Welcome to the show, Ty. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I thought your book was very insightful, and I'm wondering what led you to write the book about the science of love in the first place. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of factors, I guess, uh, contributed to it, I in graduate school at the University of Minnesota, I started studying relationships uh, there, mostly uh, breakups and divorce and how people uh, grow from those experiences. And one of the things that we saw was that people said they would make all kinds of positive life changes. Their friendships were better. Um, they were doing better in their academics, uh, a whole wide range of things. But something they didn't say very often was that they would choose a better partner the next time. And if you look back at mm. some of the things that their partners were doing, you, you thought, well, that that would probably be one of the top things uh, to look at. But um, that kind of got me thinking about it. And then uh, I just had some great students at the University of Maryland when I taught there. I taught a relationships class, and they had some great questions um, about that personal relevance, about how do you navigate the dating scene. And I realized that there were a lot of good answers out there in the psychological research but the, it wasn't always readily accessible to the people who needed it the most, which were people trying to figure it out. Sure. Um, excellent. So what, what are some, you know, through your research, what are some of the most, let's say, shocking things you discovered through your research? Well, there, there's always surprises, uh, it, it seems yeah. like. Um, you know, so, some of the initial things that shock you a little bit have to do with some of the bad news in relationships. and. Um, okay. One of the surprising things was just how sharp the declines in relationship satisfaction or relationship happiness are early on in a marriage. And so between year, and three, four, year three and year four in a marriage, you get a, a really sharp drop-off 
in satisfaction, people lose about eight percentage points uh, in that one year. And then again at year seven to year eight, there's another big drop off and there's about a nine percent decrease in uh, marital satisfaction during that year. And the median length of marriage in the United States is only about seven years. So uh, I think it was uh, both the dramatic changes early on in marriage and also the brevity <laughs> with which uh, marriage tends to last these days that I think initially got my attention. Um, but there's a number of other things that are that are positive that happen that can surprise you as well. And I think one of the things that uh, that surprised me were studies of bereavement where couples had been happily married for decades on end and researchers would ask them, what is it that you miss the most about your relationship or about your partner? And, uh, you know, it wasn't anything too spectacular. It was people saying they missed driving together uh, to work in the morning or they uh, missed that he knew that she took two lumps of sugar in her coffee. It was these uh, tiny daily kinds of activities that I think sometimes we can take for granted uh, that are actually some of the best things. Sure. Well, well, you know, it looks like you've kind of dovetailed into my next question here, which is great um, in terms of, you know, given what you had said in terms of the high divorce rates and, and brevity, like you said, of, of marriages, of people who really, you know, are, are feeling they're making a long-term commitment, you know, a lifelong commitment really so actually quite devastating what coming from a positive angle coming from a place of empowerment what um what should people look for to find a more enduring relationship to find that relationship where they can you know have memories or you know or you know have those experiences of decades out you know knowing that this, this person wants the two lumps rather than one and that kind of a thing what, sure, what should sure. they look for yeah well, you know, I guess there's a number of things, and um, one is just being, I think, clear about what the task is, and that is that uh, I think most people know what it means to be happy in a relationship, but, you know, forever after, uh, or a lifetime is actually a really long time now, the institution of marriage has been around about 5,000 years, and for most of those 5,000 years, life expectancy across all countries was under 40 years old. And so it wasn't until mm-hmm. the early 1800s when people started living longer. And now, of course, we live to our late 70s in, um, in some countries, and that's about twice as long. So ever after is about twice as long as it used to be. And uh, I mm-hmm. think that's something that sometimes gets lost in the, in the mix. Now, that being said, um, the type of person that will be able to have a relationship uh, that lasts for decades on end is usually a little bit different than the kind of person we envision uh, dating. <laughs> and I think the person sometimes yeah. we envision dating tends to be more exciting, uh, a little more fireworks involved with that, and there's that whole idea of the passionate love and having things be uh, the butterflies in the stomach and the pounding heart, and, and that's all great stuff. And I, I hope people find that and it lasts for as long as it can. But um, those aren't the same kinds of things that contribute to a, to a long-lasting relationship. And those tend to be characteristics that are psychological uh, that have to do with being consistent and, and persistent and committed and, and durable. Excellent. Now, I, you know, in your book, you say that singles, in terms of what singles, you know, what they'd be well-served to, uh, to find in terms of when, when they have an enduring relationship, and that's what they're seeking. And if you say singles only get three wishes when choosing a romantic partner, and I have to say, Ty, I love this because 
this is what with our clients I ask about. All of our clients, you know, I ask about the three essentials, and I actually do limit those essentials to three in that sentence. Oh, I love how you, so you, I love how you've empirically backed that up. <laughs> so yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about tell me about the why. Tell tell everyone why. Um, you know, they'd be well served to really be very thoughtful about those three, and you know, limit it to 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 you know something close to three. Tell sure. our, tell our listeners about that. Yeah. Well. The three wishes, you know, I should say that I wish people got a lot more. So I'm not trying to uh, be a downer by saying there's only there's only three, but I think people can find more of what they're looking for and actually find things that are most important to them if they go uh, with this mindset. And um, let me give you an example. So let's say there's a, a bachelorette, and she has 100 eligible bachelors to choose from in a room. Okay. And okay. She gets three wishes, and let's say she wants somebody who's tall, which is not an uncommon wish uh, for heterosexual women to have. Yes, it's not uncommon at all. It's extremely common. No, no. <laughs> but yes. let's, let's say yes. that's uh, six foot or taller than her. Well, that okay. would mean that 80 of those men would walk out of the room at that point because only 20% of men in the United States are six foot or taller. Now, when I see this on shows like The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. I just see people with potentially good traits walking out of the room disqualified by uh, other characteristics that, that maybe don't matter as much. So now she's down to 20 people. Let's say she wants someone. Yeah. Oh, go go just ahead. Just on the basis of how, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just emphasizing this because I think this is, yeah, I mean, this is very profound, I think, because, you know, we're starting at the outset. The only thing you're saying is, you, you know, height of six feet, and you've already cleared the room of 80 people. Yeah? Is that that's what right. you're yep. saying? And, and you know, people sure sometimes, that... <laughs> that's right. And when people go to uh, matchmaking or, or online dating, sometimes they'll specify these things um, thinking that they're preferences, but in fact, they're, they're disqualifiers. And so, uh, yes. you know, yes. some of those people that walked out that were under six foot were kind or generous or all these other good things uh, potentially. So I would say she wants somebody who's uh, matches in political beliefs, uh, something else that wouldn't okay. be uncommon. Well, if it's Republican or Democrat, you're only looking at about 32 to 35% of the population. So this means that another 16 or 17 of those remaining 20 would walk out of the room. So just after two wishes, she's gone from 100 eligible bachelors down to about, you know, three or four possibilities. And you could easily imagine how with just one more wish, there would be only one person left or nobody left (laughs) in the room. And, you know, I've done this so many times with so many different characteristics and classes and audiences. And uh, it's, it's, always been the case that after three wishes we go from rooms of 100 or 200 people down to just one or two people remaining. Yes. So it is a matter of kind of you, if you it's it's basically, you know, you've got your pool there and you're going to put restrictors on it and they're going to overlap and there could be a lot of missed opportunity. Um, So that's absolutely, that's right. Now, okay. So let's, so let's, based on what you said, right. Based on all that clearing of the room, so let's say singles, you know, um, which I have with our clients, you know, we have our three wishes, okay? So mm-hmm. why do people, given, given that, um, why, why is it that people, because I need researchers, why is it that people so often put, you know, looks and money, right, at the top of the list when choosing a partner? Well, why is that? What's behind that? Well, 
Yeah, there's good reason for it, <laughs> and I should say that mm-hmm. sure. uh, the, the best of us can be can be prone to it uh, for sure. Um, yeah. The but the main uh, reason, the I think probably the reason with the strongest evidence from the psychological research has to do with that idea that for most of human history, a life expectancy was short, and it was it was under 40 years, and uh, the child mortality rates were high. Um, the chances that your your partner uh, could die at some point were, were relatively high. And if okay. the goal was to, for the species, for the human race, to continue on, then we'd be interested in um, mating, but also then having our offspring reach a reproductive age themselves and successfully reproduce. Now, that was far from guaranteed um, for the thousands and thousands of years. And... It, Looks and money then become relevant because looks were thought to be an outward indicator of genetic health. And so uh, people who are good-looking, for example, oftentimes have symmetrical faces and symmetrical features, uh, meaning that everything is kind of lined up on the left-hand or right-hand side. And this was thought to be uh, an indicator of genetic health. And if someone was asymmetrical, that might be indicative of some dangerous genetic mutation. that would be really threatening in more threatening kinds of environments. Now, the evidence for this in uh, wealthy countries uh, nowadays is weak. So good-looking people don't tend to live longer. Uh, Their uh, health doesn't tend to be any better than people who are less attractive. But in countries where life expectancy is still low, there just tends to be a bit of stronger evidence that uh, better-looking people actually have a little bit better health. And so there's a, it's a kind of long answer to answer your question, but we're kind of hardwired to look for physical attractiveness. Now, resources are much the same way uh, in the sense that if it was hard to find drinkable water, it was hard to find food or shelter, uh, which was the reality for most of human history, boy, it would be great to partner up with somebody who had a lot of resources and had a lot of food, had a lot of drinkable water, had good shelter, um, could protect you. And uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, we like people with resources. So once again, it's something that was selected for. And so we tend to still look for people who will help us survive, even though in modern-day environments, fortunately, it's oftentimes the case, survival is almost guaranteed. Interesting. Now, okay, so, so given that evolutionary kind of, you know, backdrop there, let's talk about some dating stereotypes that, you know, are kind of there in, in, uh, in, in, in our culture. And one is, you know, that whole nice guys finishing last, another related to that, you know, girls being attracted to bad boys and that kind of thing. What, sure. um, you know, tell us about your research with respect to that. Well, you know, the bad boys is actually a good transition because uh, <laughs> the bad boys oftentimes have a certain look to them. Uh, so the bad boys oftentimes have that uh, kind of powerful build. Uh, they have that strong jaw. And uh, yeah. that's the kind of build you get from high testosterone uh, release during adolescence, actually. And so here you have somebody who would be great um, if you were looking to uh, looking for protection, uh, looking to uh, battle for certain kinds of resources, then having somebody with that kind of build but also a bad kind of attitude where maybe they're a bit selfish uh, or aggressive, that would come in handy. Now, in modern dating contexts, 
it's not so handy anymore. And when you need to be with somebody and peacefully coexist for 30, 40, 50 years, having somebody who's selfish and, and a bit aggressive doesn't really do you a whole lot of good. But you could see <laughs> certainly how we might have some lingering tendencies to want to choose people based on that characteristic. Now, nice guys is a bit of the opposite, right? And yeah. uh, nice guys finishing last, well, uh, sure, they would probably finish last in uh, hunter-gatherer times when you need to be a bit more aggressive. But but nowadays, if you think about, hey, I want to be with somebody who's going to be compassionate and kind and, and take good care of me and, and reciprocate the kinds of good things I do, a uh, nice guy is exactly the kind of guy that you want for that kind of outcome. You know, yeah, no, stemming from that in terms of, you know, the selfishness on one hand, compassion on the other hand, what, um, what are the three traits? You know, what three traits, given our, given our magic number of three there, what three traits, um, you know, based on your research, what three traits do you think um, one would be well-served to look for in a partner mm. if they want to beat those, you know, those not-so-pleasant odds that we had, we had discussed earlier on during this interview in terms of increasing the odds of finding enduring love? What, what three traits, traits should we really pay attention to? Yeah, well, there's you know there's there's a number, and in, uh, in, in the science of happily ever after, I end up reviewing nine different traits that people could could wish for uh, that would okay. improve their odds of, of uh, finding a happy and stable relationship. Uh, but let's let's go with the personality, uh, In the personality chapter, I give three suggestions okay. there, and um, okay. you know personality is basically who someone is. So if you say what's the person like. Uh, your friend will usually give you adjectives that are personality descriptors. And um, one of the handy uh, personality theories out there is called the Big Five. And the Big Five is extroversion, uh, openness to experience, uh, you know, kind of open to new ideas, agreeableness, which is essentially being nice, uh, conscientiousness, which these are people who are well put together, and emotional stability and the opposite of emotional stability being neuroticism or emotional instability. So, uh, you know, when, when you ask people in an open-ended format or you ask them face-to-face what you want in a partner, m- most mm-hmm. people will say they want somebody who's kind or agreeable. Now, that sounds nice and that would be a good decision, but in studies of online dating or uh, speed dating, when you can actually watch what people do, yeah. Uh, it's not kindness that they pick on first. So that's when you see the looks and money rise to first and second place. And then some of these other personality characteristics that would actually be more powerful predictors and kind of fall lower in the priority list. So if you were going to choose somebody uh, with a great personality, here would be the things to look for. I would say you want somebody who's kind. You want somebody who's agreeable. Um, because agreeable people... Uh, they're more empathic, uh, they're more empathically accurate, meaning that not only do they want to understand where you're coming from, but they're more likely to get it right. Uh, They're more compassionate, they're more trusting, uh, they're more likely to believe that they'll just give freely to the relationship in an altruistic kind of way uh, because they have faith that it'll all work out in the long run. And so you can imagine that this would be a great characteristic to have in, in a partner and the opposite of that, someone who's disagreeable or, or mean, uh, boy, that's a, that's a tough thing to deal with for, for years on end. So uh, agreeableness is one. Uh, a second would be 
emotional stability. And actually, this is uh, the most powerful predictor among the personality traits. And this sounds a bit like common sense that you should choose someone who's uh, not emotionally unstable. Um, but if you look at how people prioritize it, it falls pretty far down the list of priorities. And um, emotionally unstable people are not only dissatisfied uh, with the relationship because they tend to see the world in more pessimistic ways, uh, but they tend to be mm -hmm. pretty negative, and so that makes their partners pretty dissatisfied as well. I think one of the most interesting things with emotional instability comes from uh, studies looking at relationship stability. And one of my favorites was a four-year study of um, undergraduates in relationships. And what they found there was that emotionally unstable people had shorter relationships, which is probably no surprise. But okay. I think the most interesting thing is that emotionally unstable people, when they happen to be partnered with someone who was emotionally stable, and, and so this is a great situation for them because this is a, somebody who can kind of even them out and, uh, and be good for them, Emotionally unstable people were more likely to end those relationships. It's like they couldn't stand the success of, uh, of being ah. with this emotionally stable person. And so, um, you know, emotional instability gets you in two ways. It gets you in the satisfaction department, but it also gets you in the uh, instability area. I, th I think the third thing to wish for personality-wise, um, and this is a little bit less than intuitive sometimes, is somebody who's... Um, high in novelty seeking. And so novelty seeking is um, this personality trait where you always want something new and exciting. Now, sure. dating novelty seekers is super fun. So uh, novelty seekers are great to date because they're really exciting and um, they, they'll do all kinds of fun, spontaneous things. They're, they tend to get really absorbed in a relationship and they're really into the relationship and really into you and that can feel pretty good. Um, but these are also the kind of people that just kind of fall off the face of the earth at some point. And people say, yeah, they just kind of <laughs> they just kind of took off or I just didn't hear from them anymore. And um, that's partly because novelty seekers are also more likely to get bored more quickly, which means yeah. they're more likely to get bored with you. And they're also very impulsive. Sure. And so they'll engage in things like infidelity or uh, substance abuse or other things that tend to be deal breakers in relationships. So... Probably those three things, if you want someone who's agreeable, who's emotionally stable, and who's not high in uh, novelty seeking, that would dramatically improve someone's odds of having a happy and stable relationship. Excellent. Now, speaking of, you had, you know, you had mentioned you know, the emotional instability and all, all of which you just mentioned, um, novelty seeking. What are the red – so let's say um, someone finds themselves in, in a relationship where, where they're seeing some – Potential red flags. What are the mm. red flags that could indicate um, just you know more serious like, you know problems down the line? I mean, sure. probably actually a red flag in that sense. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, we're fortunate that there's like hundreds, if not thousands, of studies um, on relationship processes that can help us identify what red flags would be. So, and these things that come up in dating relationships in longitudinal studies when they follow those dating couples into uh, their marriage, the behaviors are pretty stable. So if you see it in your dating relationship, you're also likely to see it in your marriage. It's, it's not going to change. Um, one thing uh, to watch out for is what we call a demand withdraw pattern. And that's kind of a 
jargony way to say that one partner is always asking for something and the other partner is blowing them off. And uh, this uh, patterns the, the hallmark of dysfunctional couples when it comes to interaction. And the problem with it, there's nothing wrong with asking for something. Um, and sometimes there's nothing wrong with uh, not fully attending to certain requests. But what happens is people keep asking for the same thing. And so the person who's doing the demanding has to increase the strength of their demand. And eventually what this ends up in is, is yelling or, or screaming a lot of times. Uh, sometimes throwing things can be involved with it as well. On withdrawal end, what you see is that uh, sometimes it can start with something innocent like uh, like humor. So interestingly, mm-hmm. men's sense of humor is associated with less marital satisfaction. And that's partly because they use the sense of humor to try to get out of things. <laughs> so uh, the withdrawal can look uh, yeah, relatively benign. At the, you know, eventually it ends up to the point where people aren't even uh, giving a response verbally uh, to what's being asked for and uh, can end up with people even doing things like storming out of the house and slamming the door, just just leaving the situation. So, I think watching out for that's a, a big red flag. If someone's a you know a strong demander or a strong withdrawer, uh, it's something to be brought up early on. And if it's something that doesn't change, then I think that's a pre- that's usually a pretty bad sign. Um, you know, another thing that's that's more positive, I think, and that couples have a chance to look for every day is something called capitalization. And this is Shelly Gable, who's out at uh, UC Santa Barbara. She's got a great line of research on this. And what Shelly's found is that more often than not, you know, actually over 75% of the time, when couples sit down at night, uh, they'll tell each other about something that went well that day. And that could be something big, like they got a promotion, or uh, it could be something small, like they found a lucky penny, or someone said something nice to them. And this really provides then an opportunity for the other partner to capitalize on that or to show that they're also um, enthused about the news that their partner has. And so it feels great, of course, when we tell someone uh, something positive and they respond in a really enthusiastic way and they just kind of get it, and it makes that good thing even better. And what Shelley finds is that that not only improves satisfaction that night, but it also predicts better satisfaction the next day and even a week later. So this tiny act of, you know, capitalizing on your partner's good news can actually have a really profound impact on a relationship. Now, if people fail to do it, and we've probably all had it happen where you tell someone some good news and they keep flipping through the channels on the TV or, or just don't respond in a way that's positive, um, that can be yeah. a real letdown. And so, um, you know, if, if you have a partner who it capitalizes on these positive opportunities, uh, then I think that's a, there's a great sign, uh, kind of not a red flag, I guess, but a great sign that um, you have good things to come. Interesting, so being willing to share it and then also having, you know, being willing to be the partner who receives and is attentive and, you know, empathetic to it. So that's right, kind of both, that's right. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Great cycle. Okay. Yeah. I've heard some, you know, I've heard some couples say that, um, you know, their partner won't share things often enough. And so you're right. It's it's two things. It's one that uh, we need to share those positive things, but then two, boy, what a great opportunity for the other person to have a real easy pitch, so to speak, that they can just hit out of the park uh, on a consistent basis. 
Excellent. Well, I really appreciate your sharing your insights um, with us, Ty. It's been very interesting. And I'm wondering, is there any last thought or take-home message that you'd like to leave our listeners with? You know, I think uh, it's it's confusing these days. It can be uh, with with the dating scene and how fast uh, things are changing. I'm glad there's people like you doing great work to to help people out with it. Um, but you know, really, I, I think my my understanding from the people I've talked to over the years, the research I've seen, is that people often know what the right decisions are when it comes to choosing the kind of partner that that would lead to a happy and stable relationship. I think on some intellectual level, a lot of people naturally understand that. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't always listen to it. And so if, you know, the best thing that people can do is in between relationships, uh, using that time to evaluate where they've been and the kind of mistakes that they make when choosing partners and, and then looking to some good information, um, you know, whether it's, books or um, radio shows or whatever else it might be about how they can change those patterns and choose people that would actually be good for them. So I think that in between relationships is really the time for people to do the good thinking. You know, I love that because that really, you know, again, you know, just tells us just how every relationship then becomes very meaningful, whether it works out or not, because when you take the learnings from that and bring it mm-hmm. to, you know, your next relationship. So I, I love that uh, mindset. Ty, where, you know, if, my, if our uh, listeners want to, want to reach you, can you share your website with them so they know how uh, to sure. find you? No. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, it's tytashiro.net. That's T-Y-T-A-S-H-I-R-O.net. And uh, they can find more about the science of happily ever after, the, the book there. And uh, also find my social media if they'd like to connect on Twitter or Facebook. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Ty. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Hey, it was great talking with you. And uh, in case you joined us late, we'd like to share this show with people in your life. I'd like to remind you that today's show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is uh, www.intersectionsmatch.com. Appreciate you hanging out with us, and make sure to join us for next month's show. Good night, everyone.